Well, this morning we are continuing to make our way through the letter of First Peter, a letter that is written by Simon Peter, the apostle, to a group of churches that have been scattered across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these Christians likely fled from Jerusalem because of the persecution from the Jewish leaders that we read about in Acts chapter 8. Peter says they're of the dispersion, the same word used in chapter 8 of Acts, scattered. They are scattered from Jerusalem. These most, mostly Jewish Christians now find themselves living among Gentiles who also mistreat them and malign them, mostly for not joining in with them in their way of life. They are undergoing trials and slanders and temptations And Peter's writing to remind them who they are and how they are to live as the redeemed people of God among the nations. Last week, we looked uh, a little earlier in chapter two at Peter's teaching on Christ, the living stone, the stone who is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And yet he was rejected by the builders, by the Jewish leaders. But in that rejection... God made him the cornerstone of a new temple through his resurrection from the dead. And we also looked at how Peter taught the churches that as they have now come to Christ and have been united with him, they too have become living stones who are built, uh, who are being formed after the pattern and the image of Christ. And they're being built into a house, into this new temple for the Holy Spirit, built on Christ the cornerstone. God's glory presence is no longer uh, confined or bound to the temple in Jerusalem, but is now expanding out uh, through the earth, out through the world among the nations. Uh, it's, It's expanding beyond the Holy Land throughout the world. We looked at how the church is also a holy priesthood who offers the spiritual sacrifices of praise, prayers, gifts, and service to the Lord. And to one another. And how all of these sacrifices that we offer are acceptable to to the Father through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And lastly, we saw that the promise that those who put their hope and their trust in Christ, the cornerstone, will not be put to shame. Those who reject Christ, like the builders, stumble and they fall to destruction, like the temple would in 70 AD. But those who put their hope in Christ will be vindicated. They will not be put to shame. And now Peter continues in chapter 2 to remind them who they are uh, and the purposes that God has for them as his special possession. And this morning I want to focus our attention on what Peter says about the identity of the people of God and the purpose of the people of God. With the section on identity, I want us to consider these names and descriptions that Peter applies to the church. And in the section on purpose, I want us to see God's purposes for his people in worship and in witness. Uh, If it's helpful for you to follow along with an outline, we have one in the back of the bulletin uh, near the back. There's an outline of, of my sermon there. So let's start with the identity of the people of God. In verses 9 through 10, Peter says, You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter gives this list of terms to describe the identity of the people of God, who we are. All of these are are terms that we see used throughout the scripture to describe Israel. Now, now they are applied to the church. And as we said last week, God didn't abandon his promises to the Jews after they rejected Christ, the living stone. Rather, he kept his promises in Jesus. He kept his promises in Christ, the living stone, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus is the faithful seed of Abraham. He's the true Israel. And he has formed a new temple um, made up of living stones. And we are built on that temple, on Christ, the cornerstone. Uh, He has redefined his chosen people around Jesus, the Messiah. Those who hope in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are the heirs of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church is the permanent temple that will never be destroyed because it is built on Christ, the cornerstone. Now, Peter calls the church a chosen race. As he said in chapter one, the church is elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. The church is the chosen race. The Lord chose to set his love on you for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Spirit. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells the people that Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, why did God do that? Moses continues, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord chose you not because you are great or because you had anything to offer of yourself. The Lord chose you because he loves you. In other words, he loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he is a God who shows mercy and loving kindness and keeps his promises. Peter calls us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These were the names the Lord gave to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Israel was to be a kingdom living under Yahweh's reign and law and a holy nation set apart from other nations. We, the church, are a kingdom under the reign of Christ our King. And the church is a holy nation whose ultimate loyalty and allegiance is to Christ the King. Though we are made up of peoples of many nations, our first allegiance is to King Jesus and his church. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. This is our primary citizenship and identity. As Paul says in Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, this doesn't, of course, obliterate all natural ties. Just as we remain male or female, we also remain in particular families. We remain in particular nations and have duties within those natural ties and relations. But our chief loyalty is to Christ, the King, and His church. Sometimes this means standing against father or mother. Sometimes, as Jesus taught, it is standing against our nation when we must obey God rather than men. We are a kingdom of priests who draw near to God in the holy places through Christ. We have access to the Father to intercede on behalf of the church and the world. This is what we do each week in our pastoral prayer. We're fulfilling the office of priests by offering prayers and petitions on behalf of the church, on behalf of our cities and nation and the world. This is also why we gather together on Wednesday nights to pray for one another and for our communities. We are priests who are drawing near to the throne of grace to intercede on behalf of others. And as we saw last week, we're a holy priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Peter says we are also a people for God's own possession, and we are called God's people. We belong to Him. We were once not a people, but now we have become children of the living God, a possession for God. We were once those who had not received mercy, and now we are those who have received mercy and have been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Peter's quoting here from Hosea 1 and 2, where the Lord, in judgment upon Israel's spiritual adultery, receives these names, not a people, and no mercy. They received these names in accordance with how they were living. Uh, they were living in idolatry. They were living as if they did not belong to Yahweh. They were living as if they were not a special possession of the Lord, as if they had not received his mercy. And yet in Hosea, the Lord promises to give them new names. And he has kept that promise by giving them through Jesus to the church. We are now God's people. We are now those who have received mercy. And lastly, the name that, the, that Peter uses here is sojourners and foreigners. We've already mentioned that Peter addresses these Christians as chosen or elect exiles and refers to the time of their exile or their sojourning. Uh, this literally describes their social situation as they've been dispersed from Jerusalem uh, to a foreign place among Gentiles. But there's also a theological significance to this phrase, sojourners and foreigners. This is the same phrase that Abraham uses to describe himself in Genesis 23. You will remember he was seeking to buy land in Canaan so that he could bury his wife, Sarah. Uh, th this land that he's purchasing has already been promised to Abraham uh, by the Lord to give to him and to his descendants. And yet Abraham says that he's a sojourner and a foreigner with respect to these Canaanites. But according to the Lord's promise, this land was already his. 
These Christians in Asia Minor are living in a land where they are foreigners among Gentiles. But the Lord has promised to redeem this world. The nations belong to Christ and are his inheritance. Like their father Abraham, they look forward in hope to a redeemed world that belongs to them. We too are foreigners with respect to ungodly cultures and ways of life, but this is our Father's world. And we plow in hope knowing that all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord. So Peter's reminding the church who we are. We have inherited all the promises through Jesus Christ. The Father has set his love on you and made you his treasured possession. And just as Peter reminds us about our identity as the people of God, he also tells us about our purpose as the people of God. God chose us in Christ because he loves us, but Peter also gives another purpose for God's people. Verse nine, he says, you are all of these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were made for proclamation. You were made and you were redeemed so that you may publicly announce God's mighty acts. Two of the ways that we proclaim God's mighty acts are in our worship and in our witness. The general thanksgiving in the Book of Common Prayer that we use sometimes in our liturgy has a section that is no doubt drawing from this passage here in 1 Peter 2. Part of it says this, Lord, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. And I would like us to consider both of these aspects of proclaiming the Lord's mighty acts in worship and in witness. That is, proclaiming his worship with our lips and in our lives, and proclaiming in witness with our lips and in our lives. Isaiah 43 says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has called you out of darkness and into his light. He has formed you as a people for himself so that you might proclaim his mighty acts, so that you might glorify him and declare his praise with your lips. First and foremost, we do this when we gather here for public worship each week. We sing psalms, we sing hymns, we sing spiritual songs in praise to God with our lips. We read scripture aloud telling of God's mercy, telling of his mighty acts. 
We declare his forgiveness and his deliverance. We proclaim the Lord's death at this table in the Lord's Supper until he returns. You were redeemed to worship God with your lips, to praise him for his mighty acts. As 1 John 3 tells us, we should not only love in word and talk, but also in deed and in truth. In other words, we are not only to proclaim his mighty acts and worship with our lips, but we also worship with our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of our living should be a proclamation of the mighty acts of God. We should be living to proclaim in our lives God's mighty acts. In response to God's mighty deliverance from sin and death, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There's a lot that we could say about the positive fulfillment of this, uh, this calling, what things we are to do in order to proclaim God's mighty acts in our lives. And last week, we focused a bit on some of those positive actions that we're to do as we offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. We'll get into uh, more of those specific positive actions in the future as we start to look at uh, the practical instruction that Peter gives to the churches. But however, Peter here in our passage this morning focuses on the negative side of this calling by telling us what we are not to do, by urging us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If our purpose is to be for proclaiming his mighty acts in our lives, we must be against those things which get in the way of that calling. What Peter calls here the passions of the flesh, he's already referred to as the passions of your former ignorance back in chapter one uh, on the section calling us to be holy as God is holy. Peter's telling us not to fall back into the old patterns that categorized you when you were in the dark. You have been called out of that darkness. That is no longer who you are. Passions of the flesh include things that get in the way of a sincere brotherly love that he referred to in chapter two, when he said, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. In chapter four, he lists uh, additional passions of the flesh as those things which the Gentiles do. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These passions of the flesh are sinful patterns of the old Adam that still seek to manifest themselves in our lives. Israel profaned and blasphemed the name of the Lord when she abandoned God's law and pursued idolatry. Instead of worshiping the Lord uh, with her life, they disregarded his name through their idolatry, such that Paul says in Romans that the Lord's name is blasphemed among the nations. Peter says, be who you are. You have been called out of darkness. I urge you to forsake the ways of darkness. He says that these passions wage war against your soul. They are a threat to your life. If you do not abstain, they will destroy you. 
As Paul says in Galatians, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If these passions of the flesh are waging war, we must launch a counterattack. Cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, Jesus says. Do whatever it takes to abstain, Peter is urging us. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We are to proclaim his mighty acts in worship with our lives. And as we are remade in worship, we go out proclaiming to our neighbors, telling of God's mighty acts in witness with our lips. We are witnesses of the things that we have seen, heard, and tasted here. We are witnesses to all that he has done in our lives. You probably heard the phrase, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. This is not enough. We must proclaim his mighty acts in word and in deed. As Paul says in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? We must tell them, and this includes propositional content, statements spoken with our lips. Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Likewise, Paul in Colossians 4 uh, says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our Psalter lesson this morning from Psalm 96 exhorted us to tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations his marvelous works among the peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You get the idea. These are words that we need to speak. You don't have to be a great apologist making advanced philosophical arguments to fulfill this calling. But you should be able to speak about the Lord's mighty acts in delivering you from darkness into light. Because we're a people who exist to proclaim God's mighty acts, we must be a people who share this deliverance, who share this faith with our neighbors. Peter here in our passage focuses on proclaiming God's mighty acts in witness with our lives. He says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter here is focused on our conduct, our way of life. We are the people of God, his treasured possession, and our way of life should reflect that reality. He says that our way of life should be honorable among the Gentiles. This word carries connotations of beautiful or attractive or compelling. 
our lives as the redeemed people of God should be compelling and glorious to the nations. As Deuteronomy 4 talks about the effect of uh, the nations, um, of God's people living in accordance with his instruction, it says, keep them and do them, referring to God's law, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous? Our unbelieving neighbors should see the wisdom of God, uh, the wisdom of our God, as we live in light of the salvation of our God. We take the pattern of what we receive here in the Lord's presence and bring it out to the world, forgiving one another, showing hospitality to one another and to our neighbors. We are a people, which means that we should build a culture uh, so that we have something to invite the world into. We are the chosen race, the redeemed humanity, humanity 2.0, the redeemed human race. And so our lives should reflect that in our marriages, according to the pattern of Christ and the church, in our child rearing and family life, in our work, in our feasting and mourning, in our suffering and in our rejoicing. What are you preaching and proclaiming about your God with your life? Are you living as his treasured possession? Imagine with me a husband who is wealthy, but you see his wife and children walking around malnourished, dirty, dressed in tattered clothes. How would that reflect on the husband? What conclusions might you draw about his provision and his care for his family? The Lord, of course, is a faithful husband to his bride. He provides abundantly for his family. But do you reflect that reality? Are you availing yourself of his provisions? Are you displaying his great care for you and your way of life amongst your neighbors? We are to proclaim his mighty acts in witness with our lives. Though we are to show the world the good life that the Lord has delivered us to, Peter says, the Gentiles may still speak evil of you. They may still speak evil against you. Even though you have lived honorably, compellingly, attractively, they may still malign you and slander you. Like the stone that the builders rejected, you may be rejected by the world. We see this in historical accounts of the early church. For example, the Roman Emperor Nero accused Christians of great abominations and hatred of the human race. They were seen as disloyal to the empire for not participating in civic pagan rituals. They were blamed for disasters that were outside of their control. They were slandered as cannibals for eating the body and blood of Christ, slandered as incestuous for marrying their brothers and sisters in the Lord, and as treasonous for swearing allegiance to Christ the King. Today, Christians are often maligned as haters of humanity as well. We're bigoted people who are not accepting of homosexual lifestyles and transgenderism. We're told that Christians hate women and want to control their bodies since we stand against abortion. We're maligned as being narrow-minded, overprotective, 
maybe even brainwashing our own children. No matter how compelling our way of life may be among the Gentiles, Peter says that they may still speak evil against you. But we are to ensure that the offense is truly our good behavior and the gospel of Christ and not any evil that we have done. In this way, the blessing that Christ promises to those who suffer for his name will be ours. Lastly, Peter says that when we live among the nations, among the Gentiles in an honorable way, we're told to do this so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This phrase, the day of visitation, is somewhat ambiguous. In the prophets, when the Lord visits the nations, he brings judgment upon them. This day of visitation could refer to the final judgment when every knee will bow to Christ and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The church will, of course, be vindicated in her way of life when the Gentiles finally confess that the church was right all along. This could also be referring to the visitation, the judgment that the Lord would soon visit upon Israel in AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Peter makes several references uh, throughout the letter to this impending event that must soon take place, when Christ's words about the destruction of the temple will be vindicated. Perhaps he means that these Gentiles will see that Christ and his people were right all along about the old world that is passing away and the new world that has dawned in Christ. A third way that we could understand this day of visitation is in terms of salvation. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, prophesies concerning Christ's coming. He says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The coming of Christ for salvation is seen as a day of visitation. Likewise, James in Acts chapter 15 reports to the Jerusalem council about Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and of their conversion. James says, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God visited the Gentiles by converting them and saving them. Just as Peter admonishes wives in chapter 3 to win their unbelieving husbands over with their lives, so we too must seek to win our neighbors over with our honorable conduct so that they may glorify God in their day of salvation. The Father has set his love on you. He has made you his treasured possession. He has had mercy on you and has delivered you from darkness and the passions of the flesh. And he has brought you into his marvelous light. He has done this so that you might proclaim his mighty acts in worship to him and in witness to the nations, not only in our lips, but in our lives. When we remember what he has done for us, worship and witness are not a a duty or a chore, but a great privilege and a delight. As we come to this table this morning, we are reminded of who we are as God's own people. 
We are assured that we belong to him and are his treasure. We are shown his great mercy and forgiveness. And at this table, we proclaim the Lord's mighty acts until he returns. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.